Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies, a podcast channel of New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman Newfield. Louis Jacobs was Britain's most gifted Jewish scholar, a Talmudic genius, outstanding teacher, and accomplished author. Cultured and easygoing, he was widely expected to become Britain's next chief rabbi. Then, controversy struck. The chief rabbi refused to appoint him as principal of Jews College, the country's premier rabbinic college. He further forbade forbade him from returning as rabbi to his former synagogue, all because of a book Jacobs had written some years earlier, challenging from a rational perspective the traditional belief in the origins of the Torah, the Jewish Bible. A prolific author, Louis Jacobs won the heart and affection of the mainstream British Jewish community. In Reason to Believe, the Controversial Life of Rabbi Louis Jacobs, published by Bloomsburg Continuum in 2021, Harry Friedman tells a dramatic and touching story of Louis Jacobs' life and of the human drama lived out by his family, deeply wounded by his rejection. Uh, Harry Friedman is a leading British author of popular works on Jewish culture and history. His publications include the Talmud, a biography, Kabbalah, Secrecy, Scandal, and the Soul, the Murderous History of Bible Translations, and the Gospel's Veiled Agenda. He has written for The Guardian, Jewish Chronicle, Jewish Quarterly, Judaism Today, and contributed to the Encyclopedia of Modern Jewish Culture. I'm so glad his book has brought us to has brought him to our program today. Welcome. Hi, Shneur. Thank you very much for for inviting me. Really good to talk to you. Okay, so before we get started, I should just, uh, in the spirit of full disclosure, I should just mention that um, the book, this uh, the famous controversial book that Louis Jacobs wrote that caused um, uh, this whole uh, dra- uh, dramatic sequence of events, actually uh, had a profound effect on my own life as someone who grew up in the Hasidic ultra-Orthodox Jewish community in New York and was grappling with questions of the divinity or the divine origin of the Bible, uh, reading Louis Jacobs' book uh, really helped uh, uh, encourage me to think more uh, expansively on the origins, the divine origins of the Bible. Uh, So I'm especially pleased to be having this conversation with you today. (laughs) <laughs> Great. Well, I mean, I, I was also profoundly affected by Louis Jacobs. Um, I grew up, I, I knew him all my life. My father and he were children together in Manchester. Manchester is a city in the north of England, um, the, the city with the second largest Jewish population in, in Britain. And they, you know, they, they grew up together. They went through the Mizrahi youth movement together. The Mizrahi youth, youth movement was the, the Zionist youth movement. I'm talking about during the, the, the Second World War period. Um, they were very heavily involved in education and, uh, and in preparing refugees. There were many German Jewish refugees in Britain at that time and preparing them for eventual Aliyah to Israel. That was the Mizrahi movement, and they were they were together in that movement, together with Louis Jacobs' wife Shula, and with my mother. So that was the the environment I was born into, and I, you know, I, I obviously I didn't know him until I was born, but I, I knew him all my life, and I am a very very good friend of his family, of his of his children and grandchildren. Now I've also, and the other reason why I've got a very close connection to him is that I was for some years the chief executive of the British Massorti movement. Massorti is the UK equivalent of a conservative movement in the States. And Louis Jacobs a was regarded... A conservative Jewish movement. 
Just, I'm sorry, just for just listeners the... who are not familiar with all of this inside lingo, uh, there's a, a strange uh, uh, locution in uh, a strange uh, uh, language in um, in American Jewish denominationalism that one of the liberal uh, uh, Jewish denominations is referred to as the conservative movement in America, and the Masoreti is a, a sort of equivalent of this uh, liberal form of Judaism in uh, Great Britain. And it's, and it's called Masorti rather than conservative because we also have a political party called conservatives. So in order to, in order to avoid any, any more confusions, as if there wasn't enough already, it's, they, they use the, the, the Hebrew name Masorti, which, which translates as tr- traditional. Um, now, Louis Jacobs was always regarded as the founder of Masorti. He wasn't the founder of Masorti, and he didn't want to be seen as the founder of Masorti, but it was set up in order to promote his teachings, and he was regarded very much as the sort of the, the spiritual head of the organization, although he denied ever founding it and well, more than denied it, rejected finding it, but he always fought on its behalf when it got into controversy as it did several times with, with, with the Orthodox world. So anyway, I, I knew Louis Jacobs all my life. I regarded him as my rabbi. Um, he, you know, he, he was the sort of person you could ask any sort of question to. And he always had a, a, a halachic answer, and it was always a correct but liberally-minded halachic answer. And apart from all that, he was a charming man who was a polymath. He, he, he could talk to you as easily about a page in the Talmud, which he knew he could picture it. He could tell you what, where on, the, on that, any page a word was. But he could talk to you just as easily about the latest movie in the cinema or about a Shakespeare play. Uh, his granddaughter told me that when she was studying calculus, the mathematical discipline of calculus, he went off and learnt it just so he could have conversations with her. So he, <laughs> he was an incredible brain. Right, right. Uh, so just to, to step back a little bit, uh, uh, could you tell us a little bit about Louis Jacobs' uh, biography? When was he born? Where was he born? Uh, okay. Just to kind of set the stage for us. Of course. So he's born in July 1920. He's born in Manchester. Manchester is, as I said, a, a northern town in Britain. The Jewish community in Manchester in those days was very much a working class community. They were, you know, they, they were as bright as any as, as any other Jewish community, but they didn't have the money to to get on. So his father, who really should have been a scholar, worked in a raincoat factory, and his mother, his mother taught him um, English literature. She used to read long poems to him and 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 taught him sort of everything about English literature. But they were a working class family; they didn't have very much money. And Louis Jacobs was apprenticed, was expected to be apprenticed to go into the printing trade when he left school at the age of 14 or 15. That, that, that's what he was born into. Um, and he, 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 he I mean, shall I give you his whole life story now? Or do you want to do that? As, as we... Just a, a little bit of, of his early, his, his younger years. I'm curious, how religious was he, given that he became this very, you know, a, a figure of, of rabbinic, um, um, you know, as a rabbi? Was he especially religious growing up? Was his family especially religious? Okay, so he was what we would call a traditional English Orthodox Jew, which is not the same as an Orthodox Jew today. In other words, they would go to shul to synagogue every Saturday morning. He would put on to fill in the the prayer boxes every morning and say his prayers. But on Saturday afternoon, they would go and watch the rugby or the cricket. They they had a, a relaxed attitude towards their duties, and they were traditional, but they weren't um, what we would call fully orthodox today. But because they were traditional, he went to Haida, to Hebrew school, several times a week after school. And it was, it was the Hebrew school that he went to, which set him off on his journey towards becoming a rabbi. He went to a school, uh, a Haida as it's called, run by a man called uh, Rabbi Balkin. Now Balkin is, he Balkin at the age of 19 opened this school. It was an after-school club for children where he taught them Judaism, but they also played table tennis and, and pool. And they, it, was, it was a club. And he ran this school, this school for 60 years. I know people, I have friends who went there. Um, and this, you know, I'm talking about generation after Louis Jacobs. Balkin, by all accounts, was the most inspirational teacher. And he recognized that Jacobs had a something about him. He had, he had, he had an intellect which needed to be nurtured, and he had a passion for Judaism which could be drawn out. 
So he encouraged Jacob at the age of 13, after, after his bar mitzvah, to leave the Heder and to go to the Manchester Yeshiva, the, the, the advanced college for Talmudic study, still studying at school, but going to the Yeshiva after, after school and learning Talmud. And by the time he got to the age where he was expected to leave school and be apprenticed to be a printer, the rabbis at the Yeshiva said to his parents, he's got to stay here, he's got to, he's got to learn. His parents weren't happy about this at all because they needed the money. They needed the income that he, that he would be earning. But they, by this time, they recognized that he had a, a, a flame inside him. He, he, he was not going to give this up. And, and they agreed that he should stay at Yeshiva. So he stayed there until he was uh, 18, 19, at which point he felt that he could learn nothing more. He if I could then, just take, if I could just stop for one moment, since it's already been mentioned, and it, I'm sure it will come up again, the yeah. the term the Talmud. Uh, mm-hmm. If you could just tell the listeners very, very briefly what the Talmud is for those who are not familiar with it. Okay, so so the Talmud is the great compendium of Jewish thought, if you like. It's it, it, it's written, um, or at least it's, it it reaches its final form. Round about the year 500 in in Babylon, which is now Iraq, uh, the Baghdad area of Iraq, and it is basically a compendium of law, of ideas, of stories, of jokes, of, of medical advice. Everything you can think of is in the Talmud, and it's presented as a series of discussions between people, between rabbis. But these rabbis might have lived hundreds of years apart in different places. They never actually spoke to each other, but the, 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 the layout of the Talmud is, is um, they're having conversations. And the thing about the Talmud, the reason why it has such a high rep- reputation is that it is immaculately logical in its own way. It has its own way of, of own system of logic, its own way of dealing with problems and answering problems, and it never, ever, or very rarely answers a problem. But you can derive the answers to problems from the way in which it de- it deals with the problems. So it, it's an intellectual exercise, apart from being a, a repository of, of Jewish thought for of thought which went on over over three or four hundred years. And it's also notoriously can be notoriously challenging to Extreme. to fully understand its meaning. Extremely challenging, and it is huge. It is uh, millions of words, and um, Talmud students play a game where they put a pin through the Talmud and they will tell you without looking <laughs> what page and what word that pin has, 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 has touched. Um, people who study the Talmud have got a certain sort of brain. I don't have that brain. They have a certain, <laughs> sort, of, a certain sort of brain and it engages them fully. And, and they, you, you can spend your life studying the Talmud and the millions and millions of commentaries which, which have been written on it. So, to be a Talmud scholar is, 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 is you need a, 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 a certain sort of intellect and to be a great Talmud scholar, you need a great brain as well. Right. And, and this is a text from, as you said, that was compiled around 500 CE. So this CE. is you know, quite an old uh, text that still uh, 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 finds uh, meaning and, and uh, significance for many, many Jews around the world. Okay. Yeah. And so it's, with it's, that, yeah. It, it is the basis of. I mean, you know, we the Bible is the, the the primary Jewish text, but the Talmud is the place you go if you want to know the answer to something. And and and, and Judaism, certainly rabbinic Judaism is predicated on on the Talmud. Right. So with that under our belt, um, okay. you were saying that Louis Jacobs entered the the Manchester yeshiva. Well, what was the kind of the culture of that yeshiva, and how did it impact his own uh, religious thinking and and behavior? Okay, so the culture of that yeshiva was, I don't know how many students were there, but they were all, apart from him, they had all come from the ultra-Orthodox world. They all were, were born into a, a world where they knew they would go and study in that yeshiva, and they would all become rabbis or educators or play some sort of uh, liturgical or, or, or pastoral role within the ultra-Orthodox community. Louis Jacobs was the only one who had read English literature, who could quote G.K. Chesterton, who was his favorite author. The, Chesterton was a, an, a Victorian vicar who, 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 wrote, who wrote mystery stories, and, but, 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 but had a very theological side to his, to his stories. And Jacobs was, would always quote him in his sermons. He quoted him the whole time. Nobody else in Manchester had even heard of, of Chesterton. <laughs> <laughs> hadn't heard of any, any of the other people that, that Jacobs had read and, and knew about. 
So he's in this very different environment. Of course, it touches him. He, he, he says in his autobiography that he became something of a religious prig. He, 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 he became ultra-religious and he was difficult at home because he wouldn't eat the food and you know, all, all, all the sorts of things that, 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 that newly religious people do. Um, it didn't last long, but that's, he, but that's the point he got to. And he got to a point where he felt Majesty Shiva could, there was nothing more he could learn there. He needed a more advanced center of study. Now it just so happened. Oh, I must. I must tell you something before before I, before I get onto this. When he left Manchester Shiva, he had a, an option of going to Lithuania to study in the in the great yeshiva in Tells. Now Tells was the town where his father's family had come from. His father's family were not a rabbinic family, but they had come from Tells. He felt he felt a connection to Tells, and he wanted to go and study in the Tells yeshiva. It was nineteen thirty nine. He went to the Lithuanian embassy. He got himself a visa to travel to Lithuania. He, he met an emissary from the from the from the Tel who had come to Manchester looking for students. And the emissary had said, "Don't worry about the fare. We'll pay the fare. We'll pay your support. Everything's set up. You got your visa. Come and join us." And the next week, World War Two broke out, and he couldn't go. So wow. Louis Jacobs is the only person I know whose life was saved by World War Two. And it's an incredible story because we've gone, you know, we, we know, we know what would have happened. Sure, so, yeah. a world or two breaking out. Yes, yeah, but, you know, he didn't go. He, he didn't go, and, he, and his and his, and his life was saved. And it's you know, an incredible story. But he always regretted wow. not, not having that opportunity. He, you know, because what he really, really valued was the Eastern European way of studying the Talmud. It, it is a method which is quite unique. Uh, to that time and place, and he wanted to, to learn much more about it, and he, he missed that opportunity. So instead, this is now, within a few months, in fact, it had started happening already, they were bringing over refugee rabbis from Europe to Britain, among whom were some very, very high-powered, very intellectual figures, including Rav Dessler, who was one of the great uh, rabbinic figures of, of mid-20th century Orthodox Jewry. And there was a guy in in Gateshead, which is a town even further north of Manchester, almost in Scotland, who set up a kollel, a, a, a school or a, a club, if you like, of advanced study, and invited these German, um, not just German, but Eastern European rabbis to come and study there. Um, and he invited Louis Jacobs. So Louis Jacobs was the only one in this, first of all, he was much younger than all the others. He was the only one who, for whom English was his natural native language. He was the only one, again, who had read English literature. He was completely completely fish out of water, but he loved it. And he, he always knew he was different. But Rav Dessler described him as an Illoy. An Illoy is a, a, a Talmudic genius. And Rav Dessler wrote in one of his books, there is a man in Manchester, this is you know, in hindsight, who, who, who is the, the, the cream of the cream. He's destined for great things. That passage has been taken out of the latest editions of Rodas. Oh my God! <laughs> uh, I heard of the Talmud being redacted and <laughs> and 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 revised for political purposes, but I did not know that you could do this for rabbinic uh, uh, yeah. books. Uh, oh my God! <laughs> and not only that, but if you go to the website of Gateshead Kollel, because it's still going, it has a list of all their alumni. And there's only one name missing. <laughs> so, oh my God! So, so, so this is what happened to Louis Jacobs. Oh my God! Well, we wow, wow. <laughs> we really have to get into all this. Um, yeah. So, so he spent time in the Gateshead Kollel with these Eastern European um, um, rabbis uh, and and people who were, uh, you know, both. Uh, deeply immersed in the Talmud and also in the sort of old world uh, 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 form of Judaism. Um, uh, where did Louis Jacobs end up getting his rabbinic ordination? Okay, so he left the Kaleh. He, he only spent about a year or 18 months there. He, was, he wasn't the same as everybody else, and he was young, and he wanted to get on with his life. He wanted to, to marry and, ha and have a career. So he left the Kaleh, and he went back to Manchester, and he returned to the Manchester Yeshiva, he returned as a much more advanced student, and he received his, his ordination at the Manchester Yeshiva. And he then went from there into the professional rabbinate. He got himself a job in London. 
at a synagogue in Golders Green, which is the, the, one of the, the heartlands of, of, of Jewish life in London. And the synagogue was established by a man called Rabbi Eliahu Munk. And Munk was a German refugee, a, an ultra-Orthodox rabbi who had a PhD in Wordsworth, because that's what, that, that's what they did in those days. The ultra-Orthodox had, had secular knowledge. And Munk had this, this synagogue of German refugees, primarily German refugees, and Louis Jacobs got a job there as the assistant rabbi. And that was his first rabbinical post, and it was very much an ultra-Orthodox post. Um, right. Yeah. Right, and along or, or, around this time, uh, Rabbi uh, Jacobs meets Sophie or Shula uh, uh, Lisogorsky. Who, who was she, and, and what was okay. she like? So I've uh, the, I've jumped a bit. He had met Shula or Sophie or Shula um, Shula as she became known. He'd met her before he went to to, to Monk Synagogue. He'd met her when he returned to Manchester and was studying at the Yeshiva. And he was in that in, in that time. This you know we're, we're now talking about during the Second World War, and there are a lot of German refugees coming to England. And the Mizrahi movement, who which was a Zionist movement, was establishing kibbutzim kibbutzes for. Where, where these German kids could, they were all, all, all children, they came over on the kinder transport, which was the, the trains which took the children out of Germany to Britain. They set up these kibbutzes where the, the, the refugees would go, and they were training them in agricultural techniques and in preparing them for a life in the future state of Israel. The state hadn't yet been founded, but they, you know, everybody could see what was happening, and they knew that one day, when the war was over, they'd be able to go and live in what was then Palestine, and hopefully it would become Israel. So the Mizrahi movement was was running these kibbutzes, and the the native English youth population, including Louis Jacobs and his future wife Shula and my parents, were involved in that in in that world. They, they were the sort of the bridge, if you like, between the refugees and and the the British community. So he met Shula Jacobs there, um, and they fell in love very very quickly, and they married very very quickly. So by the time that they got they he took the job in. Um, London, he was he was already married and he already had a, 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 ba- a child, a baby of a few months old. She had come from a traditional right. and, oh, oh. background. Um, she, she had come from a traditional London background and had gone to live in Manchester because her sister lived there, and that's basically how how, how they met. Right. Um, and uh, how did Louis uh, obtain a college degree, and how did that experience influence his thinking about the Bible? Okay, so he's work. He's now working as an assistant rabbi at Monk's Synagogue. His job there was to run a part-time yeshiva for teenagers after school, and it was, and and his job gave him time to do other things. So he enrolled on a course at London University. And it was a course in Semitics, uh, in Hebrew, if you like. Uh, Semitics was the old, the old word for, word for Jewish studies. He was the only student on the course. It was during the war. Uh, he was the only student on the course. He, everybody else was in the army. He was exempt from the army because he was, he, he was in the clergy. He was, he was a rabbi. Um, so he was the only student on the course. And, and he, his tutor was a man called Dr. Steen. And Dr. Steen was a very orthodox Jew, but he also had an academic aspect to him he he did what jacobs he, his his attitude jacobs called it compartmentalizing he compartmentalized his views in the synagogue he was an orthodox jew in the university he believed in things which orthodoxy rejected and and the thing which he believed in which really grabbed jacobs imagination was he believed that the he he, he followed the academic view that the bible and particularly the torah was not revealed on Mount Sinai in one go to Moses, but was the comp- the product of maybe hundreds of years, certainly a long period of composition, different authors, the whole text edited together at, at some point in, into a coherent whole. So he, Steen, in the university, denied the basic orthodox principle of revelation at Mount Sinai, and in the synagogue he accepted that principle, and Jacobs was conflicted because Jacobs couldn't see how he could hold those two positions at the same time. And he was drawn, because of his intellect, 
he was drawn towards the academic position more than he was towards the dogmatic position because he, he saw that it, that, it, that it made sense. And it was this thinking which began to shape his, his future career. He didn't come out with it publicly at this stage, but it was, it was already forming in his mind. Right. And uh, one thing I, I wanted to highlight, because we're going to talk about the controversy and, and uh, you know, uh, w- w- people could uh, kind of assume uh, uh, that, that Louis Jacobs had a certain kind of personality uh, to get into these kinds of controversies or how he handled them. Um, and one thing that was really striking for me uh, reading your book is just how profoundly concerned he was uh, about other people's feelings. And this comes out really uh, very strikingly uh, in the story that you tell about how uh, Louis Jacobs and his daughter Naomi cut through St. John's Wood High Street on the Sabbath and how they were very concerned about other people's feelings. Could you tell us that story? Sure. I mean, this is a few years later, but he he's now work, he's, he now has his own synagogue in St. John's Wood. St. John's Wood is a, is a prosperous area of central London. And he, they were living in an apartment some way from the synagogue, a 10, 15-minute walk. And they would normally walk, they take a circuitous route because they, he didn't want to um, embarrass his congregants who he knew would be shopping in the high street on, on, on a Shabbat afternoon. So we take a, a Which is forbidden. Which is forbidden, According yeah. to Jewish but, law. Yes, absolutely. And, and, and he knew that if his congregants saw the rabbi, and they knew that the rabbi had seen them shopping, they would be very distressed. So, you know, he made sure that he, he didn't put himself in that position. One Saturday afternoon, it was pouring with rain. The high street was the quickest way of getting home, no, no doubt about it. And it was pouring with rain, and it was really, really raining. And he's with his daughter, Naomi, who was a young girl at the time, and she said to him, come on, we can go through the high street. And he said, we can't because they'll see us. And they'll be, she, she said, they won't see us. It's so wet, there'll be nobody there. So he said, okay, and they, they went down the high street. What they hadn't thought was there was a whole bunch of his congregants, women, in their hairdressers who weren't getting wet because they, they were indoors. And he didn't realize at the time. And then he, when he heard the next day that they, that how embarrassed they were, the rabbi, they'd seen the rabbi, and the rabbi must have seen him in the hairdressers, he, he was mortified. But that was, that was his attitude, was to, was to never put anybody in a position where they might, where they might be embarrassed. Right, and so just to to skip ahead a little bit in his uh, in 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 um, uh, Louis's uh, biography, eventually he becomes appointed as the rabbi of the New West End uh, synagogue. Um, could in nineteen uh, um, fifty three? Could you tell us a little bit about the ethos of that synagogue and who are some of the prominent members of the synagogue? Okay, so this is the big crossroads in his career. He's he left the synagogue in, in London, the monks and monk synagogue. He spent a few years at a synagogue in Manchester, and he's now offered two jobs. He's offered one job in an Orthodox synagogue in Golders Green, and another job in an Orthodox synagogue at the New West End. They're both Orthodox synagogues, but the New West End was very different. It was a very aristocratic, upper class English synagogue, and its and and its congregants were not. They were very intelligent, very educated people. They weren't necessarily Jewishly learned. They were. They represented the old money, if you like. They they were the children of of the original families who come to London in the mid nineteenth centuries. They they were running the community. They regarded themselves as the the elite of the community, and they and, and it was very it was a very paternalistic community. They ran all the charities and all the organisations. They included the the, the Rothschilds. The Samuels, Lord Samuel, was the first governor of, of Palestine under the British mandate. Um, Montague's, Ewan Montague was a, a naval commander who pulled a fast one on the Germans by, by leaving a body on the on a beach uh, with a note inside it, which and the Germans found the note and and it was false information. It sent the Germans to the, to the wrong place and allowed the British to invade. So you, can, you have all these very very powerful people. You have. Um, the Franklin family, Rosalind Franklin, who died very young, was instrumental in discovering DNA. She never got the credit for it because she died too young. These are really influential, very powerful people in the Jewish community and pretty powerful within British society as well. So it was a completely different world for him, and it opened his eyes to a whole new way of doing things, and they challenged him. 
the you know traditionally a rabbi would be asked by his congregants is this chicken kosher or something like that he was being asked why should i believe in god what's it all about and he had to come back with serious thoughtful intellectual answers and he and he set up a study group there and that was the beginning of 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 his journey away from away from traditional orthodoxy Right, and so just to take a moment for people who are not familiar with um, the the uh, structure of um, the United Synagogue uh, movement in England, if you could just describe what the United Synagogue is, who is sort of in charge of it, and how it ends up, uh, you know, just in general, kind of influencing the synagogues that are a part of that system. Yeah, so the United Synagogue is the largest organization of Orthodox congregations in Britain. It's a middle-of-the-road organization. In other words, it's Orthodox, but it is not. it doesn't really cater for the people you see, the Haredi, the people with the black hats and the long coats. It caters for – it's quite a uniquely British thing. I don't think, you certainly don't get it in Israel. I don't think you get very much of it in the States either. Jews who, who call themselves Orthodox – but don't live a particularly orthodox way of life. They're, they're traditional. Um, they will go to synagogue. They might eat kosher at home, but not eat kosher in restaurants. They, they sort of tread a, a middle-of-the-road path. But the United Synagogue's great strength is that it is inclusive. It doesn't exclude people on the basis of their observance. It wants to bring everybody in. So it is a, it, it is a federation of synagogues. They're all under the same umbrella. And it was constructed, it was formed in the 19th century, and it was modelled on the Church of England. In those days, the Jews in Britain wanted to be seen as British, they wanted to fit in, they wanted the British to accept them. So when they were setting up their their synagogue structure, they modelled it on the Church of England. The Church of England, which is also a uniquely British thing, is is headed by the Archbishop of Canterbury. The Catholic Church is headed by the Pope, the Church of England is headed by the Archbishop of Canterbury, and the United Synagogue modelled itself on the Church of England and appointed a chief rabbi who was the Jewish equivalent of the Archbishop of Canterbury. The chief rabbi had three other rabbis who were his bet in his court. Now, in, in most Jewish communities, the, the bet in the court is, is, is the decisor and, the, and no rabbi can ranks above the court. In Anglo Jewry, the chief rabbi ranks above the um, the, the, the the court, the, the bed din, and it's a very hierarchical system. That in in Britain, for until the nineteen sixties, I think, or even the seventies, the chief rabbi was the only rabbi. All the other rabbis, even if they had ordination, were not allowed to be called rabbis. They were called reverends. So you, you, you had this very, <laughs> very English, very, very structured. Um, way of doing things. And the New West End Synagogue was part of the United Synagogue. So Jacobs at the New West End Synagogue was employed by the United Synagogue, and he was under the authority of the chief rabbi. And the chief rabbi ran a fairly tight ship. And when he, for example, Jacobs was seen eating, not eating, sorry, he was seen at a mitzvah party in a non-Jewish hotel in Claridge's, a very posh hotel in central London, his congregants were having a mitzvah party at Claridge's. Jacobs felt he should go to show his face. He didn't eat there. He wouldn't eat there. He wasn't kosher. But he was seen there, and he was hauled in front of the chief rabbi to explain himself. So so the, this is this doesn't happen in, in, in other communities. This is very much a part of the, the Anglo-Jewish story, but it is central to understanding what happened to Louis Jacobs. Absolutely. So, so Jacobs ends up publishing uh, the book that launches this uh, the controversy we're going to talk about. The title of which was "We Have Reason to Believe." When did he publish it, and what was the character of the book? Okay, so so the, the book is published in 1957, and it is based on discussions that he's had with his synagogue study group. He's been, been meeting with his the study group, they're discussing theology, they're discussing intellectual questions, and somebody in the study group says he should publish it. So he publishes the book, and the, it's, it's, only a, it's only a small book, and most of it is, is completely completely conventional. It doesn't raise any eyebrows at all, apart from one chapter where he challenges the traditional, the orthodox view of Revelation, and he, and, and he talks about the Torah being a composite work composed and edited over a period of time. Um, and that book it wasn't controversial in his synagogue. It wasn't controversial in the minds of many people. 
and it had no impact at all when it came out. We, not very many people read it. Jews, British Jews don't read those, those sort of books very often. Not many people read it. Any rabbi who read it didn't think very much of it. He was, you know, quite quite comfortable with, with, with that view. And so the book would have just sunk like a stone had it not been for the next step in, in Jacob's, Jacob's career. Right. And that next step has to do with him being appointed as the moral tutor in Jews College in 1960. What is Jews College and how did it come about that he was appointed as the moral the moral tutor there? Okay. So Jews College was the premier, probably the only rabbinic training academy in centrist British orthodoxy. It's where any British, anybody who, any English or Scottish person who wanted to become a rabbi went to train. This is in the days before they were training in, in Israel, they're training in England, and they're training at Jews College. Now, Jacobs was fundamentally an intellectual, and his powerful friends at the New West End felt that he should be, one day he should be the chief rabbi, he should ha- have this position equivalent to the Archbishop of Canterbury, and that his route to get there would be by becoming principal of, chief, of, of Jews College. It was a, a an idea which appealed greatly to Jacobs because what he wanted was not to be chief rabbi, but to be the head of a, a, an academic institution, and Jews College was exactly the right institution for him. He saw it as a, a place where he could train a generation of open-minded, Jewishly learned, but, but, but questing open-minded English rabbis. In order to, the, the principal of Jews College was retiring, he his friends wanted him to have the job, but the chief rabbi was in the way. And the chief rabbi was now shown Jacobs's book. It's the first time he'd read it. And the gentleman who showed it to, to, to the chief rabbi, who was a, a lovely man and actually was quite, a, you know, tried very hard to, to stop the controversy erupting, but could, just couldn't, couldn't manage, showed, he said to the chief rabbi, Rabbi Brody, look, you should read this book. And he underlined the passages in red, which he thought Brody should pay attention to. And Brody, Brody read the book and said, this man cannot be the principal of Jews College. Now, his friends in New, the New West End were sufficiently powerful. The chief rabbi couldn't completely get away with that. They could get him into Jews College. They just couldn't get Jacobs in as principal. So they created a post for him called Moral Tutor, which had never been there before. Nobody really knew what it was going to be. But the, the idea was <laughs> he would go there, he'd work there for a couple of years, by which time the chief rabbi would have come round in his thinking and would allow Jacobs to take the job of, of principal. So he went in as, as, as Moral Tutor, um, and he gave up his pulpit at the New West End in order to do this job. So he's now doing what he wanted to do, which was to be teaching in an academic institution. He's teaching rabbis. Um, and he's hoping that sooner or later he's going to be appointed principal of, of, of the college. Uh, it, so at the end, it, all of these machinations do not work out, and they he is not, not appointed uh, principal of that institution when uh, the one who is occupying that position, Dr. Epstein, retires. Uh, why not? Why wasn't he appointed uh, to uh, the principalship at that point? Okay, so this is part one of what became known as the Jacobs Affair. He's working in the college as the moral tutor. The chief rabbi has read his book. The chief rabbi had said when he came into the college he won't be appointed as principal, and the chief rabbi did not change his mind. The chief rabbi dug his heels in and said he's not going to be appointed principal, and he may have got away with it had it not been for a man called William Frankel. William Frankel was the editor of the Jewish Chronicle, the Jewish Chronicle was like the the, the, the New York um, New York Times for Anglo, Anglo Jewry. It was the paper of record. And William Frank was a member of the New West End Synagogue and a friend of Louis Jacobs and a man who wanted to bring the conservative Jewish movement into the UK. And Frankel used his paper to fight the chief rabbi. And he, <laughs> and he published <laughs> Condemning the the old fashioned the the, the the stilted way in which British jury was conducted and, and how people were leaving in droves because it was so, it was so unimaginative and the, you had this great imaginative rabbi this great teacher Louis Jacobs who was being denied the post he wanted and and, and Frankel took this took this thing up into the media 
Um, and the national media got hold of it, and it turned into a great scandal. Now, the result of that was the chief rabbi dug his heels in even further, and more people gathered around him and set and supported him. So he suddenly got British Jewry, this small community, in two camps, one camp wanting Louis Jacobs to be appointed principal, the other camp saying this man can never be principal of our, of our premier rabbinic college. And Jacobs did not get the job, and in the end, he resigned from the college. So that was the end of part one, and it was already quite a fractious atmosphere. And then we get to part right. two. So, so yes. Yeah. So, what, what, uh, how does part two begin? So, part two begins. Jacobs has given up his job at the New West End to take the job of moral tutor. He's left the college, and fortuitously, the person who succeeded him at New West End, Dr. Chaim Pearl, took a job in America. So, the New West End pulpit became vacant again. So, the New West End congregation said, "We want him back." And the chief rabbi, who is in charge of this um, appointment, says he's not coming back. <laughs> now, there are, it was more complicated than that because the chief rabbi has to grant a certificate, and they said you've already granted a certificate when you got the first job, and you know it, there were all sorts of nuances around it. But the bottom line here is that Jacobs, having been denied the job of principal of Jewish College, is now denied the job of his old job back at, at the New West End. Now, many people thought and still think the chief rabbi made a big mistake there because the new West End was very much on the fringes of the Jewish community. It wasn't, it, it, it was not in the Jewish area. It was in, the, in, in central London and Jacobs could have been farmed out to the new West End and left to go to grass there and never, never caused any problems at, at all. But the chief rabbi, unfortunately for him, fought too hard and the affair blew up again, but it, it blew up with a violence this time. And what have, the seeds have been sown in the first part of the affair, the second part, the national media really took an interest, and he was, you know, he was on the front page of all the newspapers, and he was, he was the story. And the chief rabbi found it harder and harder and harder to to hold his own, but he refused, absolutely refused, point blank, to allow the. Jacob to be appointed back at the New West End. So the New West End management appointed him unilaterally. And then the United Synagogue sacked the New West End management and sent in their own management team. And the whole congregation of the New West End, apart from a few people, resigned. And they set up their own synagogue. And that and that was the that was the Jacobs affair. The, you, you never had a, a whole con, you know Jews are very good at rows. You know we, we're always having rows. We enjoy rows. You never had a, a whole <laughs> a whole congregation resigning en masse because of this. And the irony is, I have no evidence for this except from talking to people. The reason they resigned was not because they agreed with Louis Jacobs' theological position. They didn't really care about theology. They resigned because Britons do not like to see the underdog getting a beating. And Louis Jacobs was, was the underdog, and they supported him, and they resigned to, 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 to support him. And they went off, and, and, they, and, they, and he set up his own synagogue. Right. And uh, speaking of all the, the, the publicity that the Jacobs affair uh, received, as you mentioned, in the, the mainstream um, you know, non-Jewish press, um, uh, you know, London Times or what have you, uh, were covering this story as a major, yeah. as a major story. Um, uh, looking back at it from from you know from uh, our vantage point today, um, uh, what do you think? Uh, what do you think uh, uh, caused uh, this story to get so much attention in the mainstream British press and eventually even the American mainstream press? Uh, we're covering it. What what was it about the story or about the time that the times that that fed uh, um, you know into this uh, uh, attention? Okay, so the so the, the we're talking about the nineteen sixties. The nineteen sixties is a time of radical change across the Western world. I think the main reason why the story um, why the media picked up the story was because it was. Unusual. The, the the Jewish community did not make the headlines very often. If it did make the headlines, it was because of one or two people who were wealthy or had done something wrong, and you know. So it, it, it was the, here now and again you would get a, a story about a Jew. You didn't get a story which gave you an insight into the workings of the Jewish community, and I think people were genuinely interested in that. 
um, and particularly because it was a battle between an underdog and authority. And the 1960s was a time when the, the, the world was rebelling against established modes of authority. So I think it, it, it just fitted in with the zeitgeist. But what really took the story forward was when his new synagogue was founded because they, was, they, they bought a building which was, was, a, was a synagogue which had belonged to the, a United Synagogue congregation who had moved to, a, to new premises. And this building was in a road called Abbey Road. Now, Abbey Road was where the, the Beatles recording studio was. This is the time when the Beatles were at their peak. We're talking about 1964. The Beatles were, were you know, at their peak. Abbey Road, I, I live around the corner, I know this well, there'll be crowds of teenage girls outside the Abbey Road studios every night screaming at the Beatles or whoever, whoever was recording <laughs> that. It was the trendy street in London. And Louis Jacobs, this now media rabbi, has just established a synagogue 100 yards up <laughs> in Abbey Road. So it was, it was tailor-made for the media. And it reached its peak when, tragically, the Beatles manager, Brian Epstein, died and Louis Jacobs conducted the memorial service in Abbey Road, and the Beatles and all the pop stars of the 1960s came, came to the memorial service. So it's, it's, just, it's a great media story. <laughs> right, right. And um, uh, so clearly uh, Louis Jacobs had ideas that were different from, in some ways, from uh, the kind of traditional orthodox position about the um, about the 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 divine um, uh, origin of the Bible. What exactly did Louis Jacobs write in chapter five of of the 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 controversial uh, book? What 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 position did he stake out, and just how different was that from the uh, sort of consensus among? Orthodox Jews in England or elsewhere at the time? It wasn't that different. So the position he staked out was that the, so said the Torah was not, the five books of Moses, was not revealed on Mount Sinai, but was a composite work written by human hands. He, did, he never denied, the, the, the Orthodox phrase is Torah from heaven. He never denied that the Torah came from heaven. He used to say, it all depends on what you mean by the word from. Uh, <laughs> in other words, he was, quite, he was quite happy that the Torah was a divinely inspired work. He just didn't believe that it was revealed. You don't have football, you do have soccer in, in the States, but not the way we have it here. It, a soccer, I suppose it's a bit like the um, your, your, your baseball competition. In, in, in the Soccer Cup final, the captain of the winning team goes up the steps, receives the cup from the queen, holds it above his head, and Louis Jacob said, that's the orthodox view of how the Torah was given to Moses. He went up the mountain, he got the Torah, <laughs> and came down. He says it wasn't like that. It, it, it was a composite work written, written over um, uh, over time. So that's what he said in chapter five. But I think that if that's all he'd said, it wouldn't have had such big such a big impact. He was uh, his position was supported by several United Synagogue rabbis, and he certainly wasn't a lone wolf in in, in, in this in this story. Several United Synagogue rabbis supported him vocally and, and publicly. The reason why it has such a big impact is because of his other work. And I think it's really important when we talk about Louis Jacobs to not just focus on his views on Revelation. He was a scholar of Talmud. He was a scholar of mysticism. He was a scholar of Hasidism. He, had, he, 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 he was the greatest scholar in British Jewry, possibly in world Jewry at his time. There were two or three in, in the States as well. But he was really on, on a pinnacle of, 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 of scholarly prowess. And so when a man like that puts forward a position like that, people listen much more carefully than if it had just been somebody else write, you know, write, writing his views. And that's why right. it, it took off so much. Right. Well, speaking of his, his writing, so how many books in total did Louis Jacobs actually write? And were, was there any kind of, um, 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 you know, a, a one theme or set of themes that kind of carry through all the different books he wrote on the, the many different topics he covered? Okay, well, I can't give you an exact number for how many books he wrote, because I don't think he could give you an exact number. It was, <laughs> but, 
it's certainly cl- close to 100, together with an awful, an awful lot of articles. Um, uh, there, is, there is a bibliography which, which Oxford University produced, which is available. There's a website called louisjacobs.org, which is run by his son and it contains many of his articles and this bibliography. And so you know, that, that's all publicly available. Um, he wrote on many different themes. There is one theme which connects them all. The different themes he wrote on, as, as I listed just now, he wrote on Talmud, more in the beginning of his career than later on. He wrote on mysticism. He wrote on Hasidism, particularly Chabad, Lubavitch Hasidism. He wrote on Kabbalah. He wrote on Jewish life. He wrote a book called the, um, the uh, what's it? It's called the, well, here, the, the, the Jewish Religion, A Companion. It's basically an encyclopedia of Jewish life. It's about a million words, which he wrote himself without reference to anybody or anything. He just sat down and wrote it. Alphabetically. So he wrote in many different areas. But the common feat, and, and he wrote on Jewish law as well, he, and he wrote books showing how Jewish law has evolved over the ages. The common theme which runs through all his writing is that Judaism is a reasonable religion. In other words, it's based on reason. The title of his very first book, We Have Reason to Believe, is the theme that went all the way through his career. All the, all the way through Judaism, Judaism is the, the reason, reason is what connects everything. And therefore, one has to take a reasonable and an academic approach to Judaism and to look at it through, through the eyes of modern scholarship. We can't look at it through the eyes of medievalism. We have to take a, a, a modern view to it. That's 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 his connecting theme, right? And speaking of the reasonableness, um, uh, uh, Jacobs used the term liberal supernaturalism. What did he mean by that th- that term? Okay, so th- this is a phrase which he taken from Christian theology. It wasn't a very well used phrase, but he made it his own phrase. Supernaturalism means he believed in a supernatural being, a supernatural God, and he believed that this God, he people have a personal relationship with this God. This is a God who you can pray to, who intervenes in human affairs, unlike, for example, the Reconstructionist movement, who believe that, that God is a, a force, a, a, a force of nature rather than a, a being, if you like. We can't, you know, we don't know what God is, but Jacobs believed there was a people could have a personal relationship with God. So he's a supernaturalist from that point of view, but he's a liberal supernaturalist. He's, not, he's a supernaturalist who takes a liberal view of the world, who strives to to be reasonable, strives to find liberal answers which enhance people's lives rather than authoritarian answers which might somehow in, you know, negatively impact on people's lives. So that's, and that, that was his... He, 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 didn't, he came out of that phrase... It first came out when he was lecturing at the Hebrew University College uh, in Chicago, I think. Um, and he that's, that's the first time he used it publicly, but it became, if you like, his sort of his, his theme after, after that. Right. And uh, one thing that's interesting is that even though Jacobs emphasized uh, 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 that he was trying to promote a reasonable approach to the Bible, he did believe deeply in the supernatural, uh, in um, the afterlife, and other kind of traditional Jewish beliefs. Absolutely, absolutely, he did, and, and, and that's why that's why he calls himself a supernaturalist. And so, his, and so his his argument with orthodoxy was not like most arguments, like the reform argument, which which, which may say we challenge the nature of. Divinity or the, or the nature of the nature of Judaism. It was simply he he believed the Torah was a holy revealed work, but it was the process of revelation which he challenged rather than anything else. Other than that, he was very little different from, any, from anybody else. He, he he used he. I mean, one of the stories he told once was about somebody. He used to get inquiries from students, yeshiva students, and rabbis from all over the world. And one of them wrote him a very, very lengthy, lengthy um, question, and he ended by saying, "Please don't write the answer to this on on Shabbat on, on the Sabbath." And Louis Jacobs was deeply hurt by that, you know, by, by the fact that anybody could believe that he wasn't observant, and he was he was more observant. I mean, obviously his observance was was reasonable, was logical, 
but he did things which most modern Jews don't do today. So, for example, in Israel, when it was a festival, he would keep two days, even though today most Jews, even Orthodox Jews, only keep one day in Israel and, and two days in, in the diaspora. So he, you know, he, was, he was an Orthodox Jew. He just differed on this question of, of revelation. Right, this this particular question, um, right? Uh, so uh, I have to say, given uh, uh, Louis Jacobs' iconoclastic uh, status, I find it so fascinating that he was involved in Barbara Streisand's film Yentl, which of course is all about <laughs> a woman who's iconoclastic and sort of challenges the norms of her era, and uh, in order to study Talmud. Yeah, I mean, he it, 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 he he was the religious advisor, uh, and he went to the studio every day. And I think the only thing he saw, only piece of religious advice he gave, was he saw a picture on on, on the wall of a rabbi who hadn't yet been born at the time that the, the film was being made. <laughs> and apart from that, it was you know they, they, they were quite scrupulous in, the, in, the, in their religious religious accuracy. But he didn't quite understand the film because he said to he upset Barbara Streisand by saying, "I don't understand why you're making this film." Surely she could have studied at home. In other words, he didn't understand that Barbara Streisand wanted wanted women to have the same opportunities as men. Uh, he was of a different generation, uh, was the same generation as her. He didn't he didn't see it in in in, in that way. But yeah, it was uh, he he loved doing that. I mean, it, it was a real because because he knew about cinema and he he went to the to the movies. He it was it was one of his one of his passions. So he he loved doing that. But it was slightly different from anything else he'd ever done. Right. Well, before we conclude, I'm wondering what you think uh, are the long-term effects of the Jacobs affair. I think that the British is it was without, without a doubt the biggest controversy in British Jewry ever, and I think it still has ramifications. And the ramifications are apart from the fact that the Masorti movement was founded um, in order really to, to, to promote his his views. Um, the ramifications were, I think, a challenge to the authority of the chief rabbi. The chief rabbi never recovered from from this episode. Subsequent chief rabbis, people like uh, chief, chief rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who sadly passed away a few months ago, were, were never had the the same authority as the chief rabbi Brody in, in Jacob's time, which is a good thing. I mean, it, it, it is, and I, and, I, and I don't think Rabbi Sachs would, would have wanted that authority. That was that wasn't his style, but. The, it did. It changed the nature of the community. The community realised that it that we were no longer a hierarchy. That we that we that we could it, people would have their own views, and there was there were places within the community for different views that hadn't been the, that hadn't been the case up to now. So I think that that, that is a long term ramification, as well, of course, as opening up ordinary observant Jews now feel much more liberated in their ability to read different approaches to Judaism. Um, they, had, they would never have thought of it before. They simply did what they were told and read what they were told, not not, be, not because they, they were stupid, but because they weren't that interested. It created a greater interest, I think, in, 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 in Jewish text and, and Jewish learning. All right. Um, well, a last question. Uh, could you tell us um, what new project you're working on now? Okay, so my next book, the, the book which is coming out this October, in November in the States, is called um, Leonard Cohen, The Mystical Roots of Genius. And it is a look at Leonard Cohen's, the the religious content of Leonard Cohen's work, the, both the Jewish and Christian content. He uses an awful lot of Bible stories, Bible legends, legends drawn from the Talmud, le- legends drawn from Kabbalah, legends drawn from Christianity. He's particularly big, big on the, the book of Revelation, the last book in the, in the Christian Bible. And he, he he weaves these themes into his work in a very subtle way. So they're not they're not overt. You don't notice them, but if you start to, to to drill down and look carefully at what he's saying, all over the place there there are these illusions. So what I've done is I've taken I've taken several of his songs and I've looked at his his lyrics and I've tried to tell the story of the sources that he's drawing on and, and why he's using these sources and how he has reinterpreted these sources for his own, for his own purposes. Because I think, you know, the, the more I did this, the more I realized just what a, a scholarly man he was and how deeply he understood both Judaism and Christianity. He was, he was, he, he was a traditional Jew. Uh, for example, he would never write God's name with, in, in full. He would always write G-D. 
but he was you know he was he wasn't a an orthodox Jew. He he was an kind of iconoclastic Jew. He lived the Judaism that he wanted to live, and he also and he saw no boundaries between Judaism and Christianity. He called Christianity the great missionary arm of Judaism. So. <laughs> I, I loved writing that book, and that's coming out in November. And I'm now working on another book, which is completely different about the life of Jews in Britain today. But that's completely different, and that won't be out for another two years. Wow! I'll, I'll well, talk this, to you about it. <laughs> sure. Well, this all sounds fascinating. Um, thank you uh, so much for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today. No, really, I'm I'm so grateful that you invited me. Thank you so much for 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 inviting me to come and talk to you. It's been really enjoyable and. Great, great to talk to, and great to relive rewriting that book, which is now eighteen months in the in, in behind me. So I wrote it eighteen months ago. Um, it's great, it's great to to relive it again. Thank you ever so much. Uh, that concludes our program. Thanks for listening, and have a great day. <laughs> <laughs>